Well, good morning again. Thank you all so much for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. For those of you who gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting the church into your living room, wherever you're tuning in uh, from. Um, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we haven't had the opportunity to be introduced, my name is Jamie. Uh, it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors, one of the elders here uh, at this local church. And just so thankful to be able to have the privilege as well as op of opening up God's word with you all this morning as we are... Uh, Nearing the end of this series, um, it'll be a 15-week journey after we finish it up next week. All right, so it'll be conclusion next week, but creation and chaos, looking at and understanding our origin story, which means we've been journeying through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's where the Bible begins. And if we understand this, it helps us then make sense of the whole storyline of the Bible. And then as great as that is, it also helps then make sense of like your life and my life and our life together as the church, as the people of God. What does it even look like to be the church? And it is, Genesis is just one of my favorite books. Um, and it's been a joy to be able to just kind of camp out in these texts and to take our time going through this. And so this morning uh, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter nine. It's the conclusion to chapter nine. And I wanna invite you to turn there. Um, I'd love for you to have God's word in front of you. So you can use one of the Bibles that are in the pews this morning, or if you brought your own Bible, you can also scan the QR code that's in the pew in front of you. Um, and that'll bring up a little menu on your phone and you'll see a thing that says sermon notes. If you click there, the text will be there um, as well as space to take notes and things that'll be up on the screen will be there. And so as you're making your way there, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you'll know this, but I think it's worth stating. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, just checking things out, it's always helpful to know, like, what does the church value, right? And one of the things that we value is the word of God. And in particular, taking our time journeying through books of the Bible, or in this case, we're not doing all of Genesis right now, but we're journeying through a large section of it. And we are literally just walking through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I think that's helpful in a number of different ways. One of which just gives us the, a bigger like context of like the storyline of the Bible. But it also is really helpful because it doesn't allow the preacher to skip things, to jump to things. Like, I don't want to preach that. I'm going to jump to this passage because that seems easier. And that is one that I'd enjoy talking about more. And I say all of that because the text that I'm about to read to you all that we're going to study together this morning, um, I think as I read it, you'll be like, this is kind of an odd text. Like, what do we do with this? And so I want to just always frame it in that the word of God is living and active, that God speaks through all of his word and God is going to speak. I trust that he's going to speak to us through Genesis 9, 18 to 29 this morning with all of the weirdness that is in there. And if you're like, what in the world is this text about? You're gonna see, all right? I think you'll probably also see very quickly that I'm thankful last week was family style service. I'm glad we weren't in this text, all right? Um, so now you might have an idea of like where we're going with this, all right? Uh, but this text communicates so beautifully if we really press into it, how our God meets us, cares for us, brings deliverance, and points us to the reality of just like how deeply, like I need a savior and you need a savior. And we have a God that moves toward us. And so if you're able, I wanna invite you, please stand as I read God's word this morning. Genesis chapter nine, 18 to 29. <clears throat> this is nearing the conclusion of the story of Noah and the ark. They've come off the boat. All right. Um, and we looked at some, I'll, Get us up to speed in a moment, but this is nearing the end of that account. 
It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem and Ham and Hapheth, And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20, and Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Hapheth took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Hapheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, uh, an interesting text, no doubt, a lot going on. I'm guessing you have a lot of questions as I have a lot of questions about this particular text and then studying it th this week. Uh, but just kind of let you know where we're going. I wanna look at this and at one level, we're gonna see that God is showcasing again and again that there's a particular pattern. There's some repeated patterns and we're gonna see what's happening here at the end of Genesis 9 is showcasing that again. And then we're gonna dial in a bit more specifics. So we're gonna kind of start at a big high level, kind of a pattern that emerges. And then we're gonna look more specifically at a problem. And yes, it's a problem that we're seeing very clearly in this text, but we also need to make sure that we don't just see it as something that's a problem way back then, but we also need to see that's a problem today. And may, some of the particulars may look different in your life and my life, and they likely do, but the problem, what's going on at a heart level still remains. I want to look at the provision that God makes for us. And so the pattern here we see as we look back over verses 18 to 21, I want to highlight just a, a couple of things. And so as this gets going, one of the things we've seen throughout the, the book of Genesis is we've come to certain parts where there's genealogies that are listed, there's family lines that are listed. And a big theme that we've seen throughout the text so far is that after the fall, after Genesis 3, all right, we have these two lines that diverge. And people are either part of the, the seed of the serpent, those that live in rebellion to God that keep thinking like, no, if I do more of what I want to do, things will go well. And then there's the promise seed of the woman. And there's this anticipation and there's this hope. Even Noah's own father was hoping that Noah would be the one ultimately that, that would bring comfort and peace and restore order and beauty and harmony to this world. And we know at this point in the story that there has not been that order and beauty. And so God sends a flood and he literally destroys all the earth. The chaotic waters come back over the earth. Creation itself is collapsing in on itself. And yet we looked last week that, and over the last couple of weeks, that God spared Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law, right? And the animals, and they're all brought on this, this gigantic ship, this ark. And as we looked last week, they emerged from the, from the ark. And there's this real sense, it's a retelling. It was a pattern that we looked at last week of like, oh, there's creation language that's happening again. God's not giving up on his plan. God is doing this new work of creation and things really start off well, all right? We hear that Noah offers up like worship to God, all right? 
Noah engages in this sacrifice, this burnt offering. He's praising God. God makes incredible promises that he's never gonna flood the, the entire earth again. And he says, I'm even gonna give you a sign of my grace. I'm gonna put this bow in the sky, this rainbow, right? All those things we looked at last week. And so all of that is kind of in the background here. And at one level, we're thinking, man, like things are, all right, cool. Like things got off to a rough start. God kind of reset. It's like new creation. It's creation 2.0. Maybe things are going to be different this time. But there's some clues in the text, even in verses 18 to 19, that we have to remember the context. Moses is likely the one writing these accounts down. And if you know the story of Moses, you know that he's delivered God's people from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they're on the edge, they're like on the cusp of going into the promised land. And there's some real significance to what they're about to encounter that is tied here. I think Moses is telling this story about Noah because it tells us, right? Like Noah lived 950 years. That dude has a lot of stories. Like you gather around Thanksgiving with Noah. I mean, that guy's not gonna shut up, right? Because he's got story upon story upon story. And there could have been so many things that we could have recorded here, but there's this story with all its weirdness and complexity. Like why this story? Well, there's something that's bigger that's happening. And verse 18 to 19 allude to this. And we're gonna see this not only this week, but next week as we wrap things up and get into chapter 10 and 11. But the sons of Noah went forth from the ark and you get the three names of the sons. And it tells us Ham though was the father of Canaan. Did you notice as I read that, how often Ham is tied to Canaan? Like the author wants us to know, God wants us to know. That's a detail to pay attention to. Like that's a hyperlink to something else. Like don't miss that. And it says, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people, the whole earth were dispersed. Because there's a story that's coming up next week in the Tower of Babel and God dispersing people. And so it's these little clues here of like, oh, there's something that's happening here and it's gonna play out with, there's some significance about Noah's three sons and their family lines. But in particular, there's something we need to notice about the family line of Ham, who is the father of Canaan and about this dispersion that's gonna take place. So all these things. Now, remember, so far though, so good at, at this point, even tells us in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. This, my friends, again, this is creation language. This is cultural mandate sort of stuff. If we remember back in Genesis 2, verse eight, it says the Lord God planted all right, the garden in the east of Eden and gave the man to like work it and to keep it, to till the soil, to cultivate, to do this work. And so right here, we've seen, as we looked at last week, like Noah worships God, God gives promises. There's the bow in the sky, like everything is good. And it even says, Noah then began to be a man of the soil. And the word man in the Hebrew is Adam, all right, where we get the name Adam. And the soil or the dirt or the ground is the Adama. And so Noah began to be an Adam of the Adama. Like this is all Genesis 1 and 2 language. Like we're meant to see this. And then it says he planted a vineyard. What is Noah doing? He's being a gardener like Adam and Eve were first called to be, to cultivate the earth, to steward it. He's a gardener, all right? He planted specifically a vineyard. Now, we don't know if Noah was the first one, was he the first one to ever plant a vineyard to, to grow grapes and to figure out like what one can do with grapes to get them to ferment and to turn into wine? We don't know that, but it's, it's the first mention of it. So if you end up enjoying a glass of wine at Thanksgiving, I think you might have Noah to thank for that, right? It's just like, hey, this is cultivation. It's culture being created. Like there's all this, this don't miss this. Like this are things advancing. This is a beautiful thing that's taking place. 
And if we could just stop at verse 20, we would look at it and be like, wow, okay, that's great. He's doing the right thing. Way to go, Noah. Like finally, somebody's doing the right thing. But then verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Friends, I told you this first section in these opening verses, it's actually not meant to, at a deep level, even hyper-focus on Noah, but it is setting a pattern. And it's a setting a pattern or it's highlighting a pattern of things that took place in Genesis 1 and 2. But this right here, this verse 21 is also reminding us of the pattern. It's reminding us of the foolishness, the folly of Adam and Eve reaching for the fruit. And now what do we see taking place here? We've got another man who in a different way is reaching for the fruit. And there's just a folly that's being highlighted here that it is never spoken of in the scriptures to avoid alcohol, but it is a call to avoid drunkenness. And now Noah, it tells us, he reaches for the fruit of the vine. He reaches for the wine and he takes too much and he becomes drunk. And then it tells us this, how does he end up? He ends up uncovered, meaning he's naked, he's exposed, he's vulnerable in his tent. And even that little word in is meant to take us back. It's the same word. It's the, the same phrase. There's a lot of repetition of different words throughout the opening chapter of Genesis. And it tells us that the Lord God planted a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle or in the midst of the garden. And this phrase now occurring, it's another way just to highlight and to link us back and say, oh, Noah's still reaching. Noah's still grasping. And the story is playing out again and again, because how did it work for Adam and Eve after they reached for the fruit? Were they able to become God like the serpent had promised them? No, they end up realizing that they were naked and they felt shame. And there's this invasion that takes place and things begin to unravel. And so right out of the gate, what we are being told through God's servant Moses as he's compiling this together is listen, when we keep reaching, it's going to play out the same way. You're gonna end up in a place of shame. You're gonna end up in just this path of foolishness. It's not gonna bring the life that you want. Kurt Thompson has a number of helpful books, one of which is The Soul of Shame. And in it, he writes about the destructive way that shame works and even how prevalent that was in the garden. Even the temptation of the serpent to say to Eve and to Adam, you're not enough unless you have this. It's a voice of shame and things begin to play out and it spirals into more shame. And so he says this, from the beginning, it has been God's purpose for this world to be one of emerging goodness, beauty, and joy. Like that's what we're created for. Evil has wielded shame though as a primary weapon to see to it that the world that that world never happens. Consequently, to combat shame is not merely to wrestle against something we detest. It is to do that very thing that provides the necessary space for each of us to live like God and become like Jesus and grow up to be who we were born to be. Now listen to this. Shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses. Have you thought about it that way? Like Noah in that spot, you and I in our place of shame where we reach for, we still believe the lies of the enemy. 
it's telling us this is not neutral. This is an emotional weapon that evil uses, one, to corrupt our relationship with God and each other. That's taking place here with Noah. We're gonna see the ways that it has impact on his family with what takes place with Ham and for generation after generation. It is disruptive. It can never deliver on its promises. And then two, it disintegrates to disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. Like we're made for relationship and we're made for vocation and work and the lie of the enemy and the shame that he wields as a weapon, it destroys both. It just wants to destroy our relationship vertically with God, horizontally with other people and with the work that he has given us to do So even in the good work that Noah is doing of cultivating the grapes to turn into wine, to enjoy a drink, it goes too far and it leads to nakedness. It leads to shame. And it's this picture again on repeat of Genesis 3 is just happening over and over and over again. And it's true because it happened and it's true because it continues to happen. If you and I were honest with our past week, we would see these patterns playing out. But I told you this is meant to highlight just a pattern in general. It's meant to go further though. Noah is depicted here, like there's a foolishness to things, right? And there's sinful behavior, no doubt. But there's an even deeper rebellion that is highlighted as we look at really what this deeper problem is and the interaction and what takes place with his son, Ham that there's a rebellion there that highlights a pattern, yes, of Genesis 3, but also a pattern of Genesis 4. Do you remember Genesis 4? Where you have the first brothers, Cain and Abel, and God comes to Cain in love and says, sin is crouching at your door, but you like must master it. You must subdue it. Do not give into it. And Cain pays no regard and he kills his brother, Abel. And from that point on, what do we begin to see? the outworkings of the fall and the disintegration of relationships vertically with God, horizontally, I mean, even brothers can't get along. And so we have this disintegration and work gets out of whack and you have people in the line of, of Cain that represents the seed of the serpent. And there's more murder and there's more strife and there's more bragging about these atrocities, but there's this hope Will there be one that be come from the seed of the woman that's going to set things right? But before we see that, we've got to know like how deep the problem goes. And so I want to read again, verses 22 to 25. And then we'll ask, as I think the question very naturally emerges, like what in the world is happening here? So Noah, there he is. He's in his tent. He's uncovered in his tent. Verse 22 says this, and Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that little clue again, right? Saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Hapheth took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And so as we read this, I mean, I think the question that this text sort of like begs to be asked, right? It's like, what in the world did Ham do? Like, what, what's going on here, right? Um, and so 
just as is probably fairly obvious, obvious, but I will state this again as a caveat, a bit of a nuanced disclaimer in this. Like, there's some really difficult things in this. It's difficult to know how to interpret it, to understand it, and then even further to be like, what does this have to do with your life and my life? Like, what in the world is this like dysfunctional family doing thousands of years ago? Like, what does it have to say to me, like right here in this moment? And I hope by God's grace that we will see more truly and clearly, but we've got to press in a bit. Um, and this, what's in here is obviously like, it can be awkward to talk about. It can be disturbing, right? At the very least, it's, it's a horrible, horrific depiction of somebody who should have been caring for his father, sinning against his father. And all of us, here's the reality, we're all here at one level through our own foolishness and folly and rebellion where, where we end up right ashamed because of the, the ways that we've sinned. We need to own that, repent of that, press into that, be reminded of the grace of Jesus. And then there's also things that you carry that shame that has nothing to do with what you've done, but it's been what's done to you. And even reading an account like this, can, we can start to feel it even like in our bodies, like physically being like anxious, things beginning to, to well up. It's like, I don't want to think about these things. And these are hard things to be thinking through. I mean, imagine, you know, like Noah who in faith built this boat. He's not a perfect man, but he built this boat and he, he brought his sons and he brought Ham on that boat. And he rescued, he was part of the rescue mission of, of Ham and, and the woman that Ham had, had married. And then they'd come off, but we don't know the exact passage of time, right? But I've just found myself all week, even being just like curious about things for Noah. There's a respect, obviously, that the two other brothers have for their dad as they come in and they clothe him and they, they won't even look on his nakedness. And we'll talk about that more culturally, what that means in a moment. And I know I'm going, this is just speculation on my part, but like, man, it sure seems possible that, that if we were curious about Noah's story, that we might learn that like, I mean, I just, there's not a lot of people left. It's telling us like, it's from these people, all of humanity is gonna come forth again, right? And one of them turns against his father turns against his own flesh and blood. This horrific story is playing out again. And to be curious about Noah's story, I mean, to, at one level, I, I think it kind of makes sense even that he would reach for the vine and that he would overconsume. consume you think about like all that Noah has endured, right? You, you think about like how traumatic, like legit capital T trauma it would be to have seen the world destroyed, the people that you like grew up with. I mean, this is a hard, hard thing. Did Noah, was he just trying to escape? Be understandable if he was, right? I mean, like all the, these things that are running through, and I don't know if this is the, I don't think it's even the main point of this text, but, but my mind runs there. I'm curious about it. We have a son in Ham who had no curiosity, seemingly had no empathy but saw an opportunity to assert his power and his dominance and his control. And so friends, when we think about, well, what did Ham do? It tells us Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the nakedness of the father and he told his two brothers outside. There's a lot of different interpretations. We don't have time to get into all this. I don't even know if you want to get into all, all of these, right? There's lots of speculation down to the years. One theory, all right, would be that Ham, what is being spoken of here, like Jewish interpreters that would, would debate the scriptures, some believe that, that Ham went in and he castrated his father. Others believe that this is speaking of a, a, an act of like sexual violence by a son against his father. Regardless of which, like we're talking like the horrible things. I think there's likely one of two things that I'm most convinced of. It wouldn't be the first two that I just shared. And the two that I wanna share, I, I think regardless of which one you think is most compelling, I think ultimately they're highlighting similar themes for us to pay attention to. And so at, at one level, when you see this, he saw the nakedness of his father and then says he went and told his two brothers outside, right? And then it tells us that, what did they do? Like they respond by, taking a blanket. They're not even going to look at their father, right? They're going to cover their father's up, father up. Like they're caring for him. They're doing what good sons should do. And what is Ham doing? Ham is reveling in the shame and the brokenness of his father. He is delighting in the disgrace of his dad. I mean, that is horrible. And in a culture of this kind of honor, shame culture to see, and the scriptures speak of this numerous places, to see the nakedness of one, like that could be a shameful thing. And the right response would have been like Shem and Hapheth to go and to cover up their father. But rather than covering him up and Ham not being curious about his father, not being empathetic toward his father and what he saw, saw an opportunity to assert his control. And I'll unpack that more in a moment. And then he runs, he functionally, he's bragging about it. He goes and he tells the brothers not, let's help dad, but rather this posture of mocking, deriding, like all these things that are playing out. Bruce Waltke has a great commentary, this Old Testament scholar on the book of Genesis. And he speaks of one of the interpretations simply would be related to, and still horrific, like this, this voyeuristic behavior of Ham that's intent on something. He says it this way, voyeurism in general violates another's dignity and robs that one of his or her instinctive desire for privacy and for propriety. You see this phrase? It is a form of domination. There's an asserting of power and control by Ham as he sees his father and then speaks of it. Like there's, there's something going on at a heart level here for Ham. Worse yet, he dishonors his father whom he should have revered in any case and then increases this dishonor by proclaiming it to others. Moses compiling this is the one, right? Who would be given the law and would be given the 10 commandments and in there, honor your father and mother. Like it's one of the big 10, right? Um, and this here is like a clear, it's so clearly a violation of this. And so at one level, there's that interpretation. But I think there's something else that is even presses in even more into the, the wickedness that I also think is likely is taking place here. So when we read again, father of Canaan, it's beginning to tell us, it doesn't say Ham, all right? It says, it says Ham, but it highlights the father of Canaan. It's meant to tell us about this group of people that Moses is gonna lead into the promised land. And they're, who are they gonna encounter? They're going to encounter the Canaanites. 
And Moses is telling this in a way to say, hey, here's the origin of some of these these people. Here's what you're up against. And when God tells you to drive them out, he has good reason to do so. And so he's giving a bit of the backstory. And then it says, saw the nakedness. Now that could simply mean like what we just looked at, interpretation one showed this voyeuristic, he saw it. But it also has other connotations in the scriptures that I wanna read to you in just a moment. And then it says, and he told his brothers outside. I told you this, there's a pattern, right? Genesis three, there's a pattern of Genesis four. As we read further in Genesis four, after Cain kills Abel, eventually we meet a man named Lamech. Do you remember Lamech? Who's got multiple wives. He commits horrible atrocities. He kills fellow image bearers. And what does he do? He writes a worship song to himself about his power and domination. That's how sick and twisted Lamech is. He's bragging about it. And this language here, again, I think is reminiscent. I think we're supposed to see, oh, it's happening again. And so as we think about this and we think about the father of Canaan and we think about this replaying of scenarios that happened in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, if we were to flip ahead to the book of Leviticus, right? You're like, oh, I bet this goes to Leviticus. You're right, okay? So this goes to Leviticus. And in the early portion of Leviticus 18, God is telling the people, listen, I brought you out of Egypt. Do not behave like the people did in Egypt. And now I'm about to bring you into Canaan and do not follow their ways. Verse three says this of Leviticus 18, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan where you're going to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then as the, if we kept reading Leviticus 18 all the way through Leviticus 20, one of the things that we would see over and over and over again is this repetition of certain descriptions of rebellion, of atrocities, things that the Canaanites were known for. And we're, I think, being told, this is where it stems from. This is where it originated. And so when we get these words about he saw the nakedness, it can also be understood as uncovering the nakedness. There's a violation that's, beyond even voyeurism, I think that's taking place. In verse seven to, to eight, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. The two shall become one flesh and the scriptures recognize that. And there's this union. So what is done to a father is doing to the mother. What you do to the mother is doing to the father. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And if we kept reading without, I'm not trying to be overly graphic in this, but this is speaking of an incestual sexual assault by a son to uncover the nakedness of your mother or father. And I think what is taking place here by Ham is likely what would have been happening in the tent would have been, yes, Noah there, but likely his mother as well. And that there is an assault against his own mother. And perhaps that explains why the, the curses that, that Noah pronounces are so severe and so intense. That, that does make sense in the voyeuristic interpretation, but it makes a whole lot more sense if, you, if Noah becomes aware of what took place. And many scholars will also point to the fact that this connection to Canaan is that this is the origination story too of where Canaan came about through the ancestral activity of a son violating his mother. 
I told you, like, it's important that we preach through the whole book of the Bible and we don't skip anything, but you can see why at times it might be like, could we just skip this, right? Like, what in the world is this communicating? And so Noah learns of it. And he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be. Not cursed is Ham, cursed is Canaan. And not that he can make it so, God's the only one that can bring blessings and curses, but he's asking for this. And it's a way of highlighting, oh, like this is how broken things have gotten. And the people you're about to encounter, Moses is saying to the Israelites, like this is, this is the land you're gonna go into. I mean, we're gonna see you as we get into Genesis 10 next week, all the enemies of God's people. So many of them come out of the family line of Ham, Assyria, Babylon, right? Like it's just chock full of all this in the Canaanites. And they're abominable practices. But friends, I think what we have to see here to turn a corner is the tendency, I think I can read this and think that's horrible. That's weird that that's in the Bible. That's weird to do a sermon on this, right? And if we just saw the weirdness of it and didn't see, oh, we need to focus not so much on the means of this rebellion, but on the motivation for rebellion. Because if we just focus on the means, we can feel good about ourselves. I mean, like there's some crazy stuff that happened in the Bible. There's some really bad people. Glad I'm not like them. But if we read it through the lens of motivation, we begin to see, oh, I'm just like them. The means, the outward acts, different. But what's at a motivation level? And I think we come back to what Bruce Waltke said, this theme to assert power, domination, control, like in this time and place as horrible again, I've used that word horrible a lot today, right? what people would do oftentimes to assert their power and their dominance would be to do what Ham likely did to his dad's wife. Like think of the story of David fleeing from his son, Absalom. Absalom is, if you know the story, like he's trying to take over the kingdom and it looks like he's gonna win. And there's these accounts of Absalom beginning to sleep with David's wives and concubines. Why? Why does he do that? And it's a public spectacle. He's asserting, I've got the power now. I've got the control. I'm the man. Everybody must bow to me. And there's something in the human heart. Again, though the way it looks outwardly is likely, hopefully very different, but that motivation is still there. We're still reaching for the tree. We're still believing the lies of the enemy that says you can be like God. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller speaks of the three big, like the, the idolatry, like three areas that humanity for all of time has been so like given to. And it's the, the idolatry, the lies of money, sex, empowered, the abuses of those things. And we think specifically around power, he says this, the original temptation in the garden of Eden was to resent the limits God had put on us. You shall not eat of the tree. We resent that sort of thing. Don't tell me what to do. And to seek to be as God by taking power over our own destiny. We gave into this temptation and now it is a part of our nature. Rather than accept, accept our finitude and dependence on God, we desperately seek ways to assure ourselves that we still have power over our own lives. But this, my friends, is an illusion. 
What if we rightly understood that God is the one with power and we're to gladly surrender to him and be dependent on him. And that's where life is found and to live in glad obedience to him to say, oh, the tree there, don't eat of that. Okay, cool. Like God, you have what is best for me. Instead, we keep reaching. We keep asserting our power. And if we don't pay attention to that motivation, it will actually rob us of life. It'll send us down a path that doesn't lead to flourishing, but leads to devastation and destruction. And so as we get to this last section, here's what I want us to to see. Because I think what it's posing to us is this, this question to consider. On one level, right? We're foolish people and we end up with, with a lot of shame and embarrassment. We've got this crippling shame based on things that we've done, but also things that have been done to us. What do we do with this crippling shame? But also we have to recognize we have a lust for power. We want to be in control. We don't want to submit to anybody. We are these elevated individuals. Like we want, if, if it could be known, we might never state this, but if it can be known, like we want to be treated as a God. We want our will to be done more than God's will to be done. How, what in the world can help us overcome that lust for power and the crippling shame that we feel? If we see this story with those themes, do you see how it actually starts to apply to us and all of our modern sensibilities and our issues in 2023? It's an ancient, ancient story, but it's, it's a fresh story. It's a here and now story. It's a, I don't know what to do with the shame that I carry. I don't know what to do with the ways that I've sinned and been sinned against. And I don't know always what to do about this part in me that still longs for power and control. What do I actually need to do? What do I need to look to in the, the calling, the invitation, as we see these last couple of verses, is to see and to look toward the provision that God makes. And so, yes, God this section ends with this, this sort of blessing and curses, right? He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. It's a blessing of God. It, says, it doesn't say blessed be Shem. It's like the God of Shem. And Shem becomes the, the people of God, right? And Abraham's gonna come from that line that we're gonna meet at the end of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12, which we looked at last year in a series, right? Like it's all of that. But again, there's these curses that are being pronounced. And in front, friends, the only way that my shame is going to be dealt with and your shame is going to be dealt with and this lust for power and control, like how is that going to be put to death is when we realize that this story is pointing to an ultimate story. We talk about this often and we're going to keep talking about it because I'm so prone to forget it. We need to be reminded over and over again how every story is telling the one story of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Do you realize to deal with your shame that Jesus himself, the God man, the one who never had sinned against anybody, who's only sinned against, was stripped naked, endured the ultimate shame and mockery and derision, was nailed to a Roman cross. And the people that had claimed that they were his followers, like mocked him and spit upon him, deserted him. There he was for all the world, all the passerbyers to see the place of ultimate humiliation, completely uncovered, completely undone, that he would go to that depth so that as he was uncovered and as he declared it was finished, that you, if you're in Christ, could be clothed now with the righteousness of Jesus. 
that you're no longer defined by the ways that you have sinned and been sinned against, but there is a righteousness that you now possess that nobody can touch, that nobody can take away from you, that no circumstance can take away from you. Nobody can violate that. It is sure, it is in Christ. Jesus right now is guarding that inheritance for you. He's got it. He has got you. So at one level, it deals with our shame, but also this need for power, when we see that God himself, that Jesus, the God-man, did not grasp for that power, but rather willingly relinquished it, the one who rightfully has all power and might and everything is subjected to him and he made this whole world, he actually empties himself. I mean, here are the words of Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul's writing to a church. He's writing to us, like, have this mind, cross point amongst yourselves, which is yours. Like it belongs to us in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do we deal with our lust for power? We see God himself emptying himself, not grasping the power that was rightfully his, but willingly emptying himself all the way until it took him to the place of ultimate shame, being nailed to a cross. You and I deserve our enslavement to sin. That's the trajectory of our story. I'm part of the seed of the serpent if it wasn't for the intervening grace of the Lord Jesus, and so are you. But now if you're in Christ, you have this whole new reality where you move from the place of shame to exaltation because what happened for Jesus is now true for you. This is why Paul would write just the next couple of verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus was in the place of shame and being mocked naked. And now he is exalted. He is ruling and reigning and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Friends, may this story point us to the reality that Jesus has dealt with our shame and that Jesus has showed us, like, listen, you are now, what is true? Jesus, you've been exalted. That's, that's you in Christ. That's me in Christ. And now we get to use the power that we have not to make a name for ourselves and not to keep reaching for that fruit, but rather to use our power in a way to empty ourselves of it in the be- for the benefit and the good of our neighbors and for this world and to point them to Jesus so that everyone might be caught up in this vision of making the name of Jesus more famous. Like, let's be the church. Let's do this together. And so an obscure, weird story out of Genesis 9 points us to the reality of our deep need and Jesus's great provision for us. This meal we're going to partake together in just a moment is a reminder, a means of his grace toward us to remind us of what he has done. So as the worship team comes back up, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the ways, God, that your word, it continues to speak to us even as we seek to understand in its cultural, historical context and things that seem so bizarre and weird and horrific. God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to hear what is from you, to hear the truth of the gospel, to be reminded the new identities that we have. May this meal that we partake in now, may it nourish us and sustain us. God, I pray for any here this morning who have not trusted in your work who are carrying Shame. I pray today, God, today that they would move from the place of shame to exaltation through the finished work of Christ. 
Jesus, keep building your church. We pray that you would, by your grace, use us. You do not need us, but thank you that you invite us to participate. And so God, work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.